Welcome to the Force Matters podcast, powered by Motusi. I'm J.D. Romick. And I'm Jonathan Ang. We're here to have disruptive, inclusive, and informative dialogue at the intersection of technology, research, and clinical practice. Our promise to sort through the BS so you don't have to. Our focus is what matters to your musculoskeletal health. Good morning, everybody. This is John Ang. And Dr. J.D. Romick. We're fresh back from CSM and J.D. made a buddy while she was there. Well, I've heard this guy on the PT Inquest podcast. He's good friends with Eric Maida, who was on our podcast a few weeks ago and is just so full of energy, so brilliant. And he's a sports physical therapist based out of Rochester, but he's a board certified sports clinical specialist, completed a residency at the University of Rochester Medical Center, got his DPT from SUNY Upstate uh, in 2017 and is practiced in outpatient orthos and sports settings. He's just a brilliant mind. He, he currently works for sports performance for Rochester, New York football club in the MLS Next Pro League through the University of Rochester. Anyway, really great um, presentation at CSM about returning to run post-op ACL. We cover everything from like things to measure, things that are meaningful, things to take away and put into your clinical practice now. It was so fun, as well as some things that he's reading um, on his nightstand, some post-apocalyptic fun. So he'll have some book recommendations. Um, But link with him, uh, PT Inquest podcast, and find him on Instagram at jasontory.dpt. And uh, yeah, can't wait for you to listen to this podcast. Yeah, and I think you'll walk away with some very useful uh, tools and metrics and assessment uh, measures for uh, for your patients in the clinic. Really, right after this, uh, right from listening to this podcast. So we hope you enjoy. And without further ado, yeah, here we are. Okay, so yeah, let's jump into your background. So um, you obviously have this really amazing pedigree and I'm excited to jump into how you measure things, what matters, how you practice and all that, but give us some of your background. Sure, so the uh, I guess the, the pitch is that I'm a sports physical therapist and performance coach. Uh, recently somebody asked me, what I, what am I? And, and I realized that I have to actually just say both of those things. I don't know that I can uh, completely separate one versus the other at this point. So um, I've been a physical therapist for six years and a strength and conditioning coach for five years. I've coached uh, endurance athletes on the running side of things too for that same amount of time. Um, Most recently, my my main role was as the sport performance coach for Rochester, New York, uh, FC and the MLS Next Pro. That was uh, last season. Um, Unfortunately, the team isn't having a season this year, so it gives me some more time to tool around with some of my other duties at University of Rochester, which is where I'm located, uh, Rochester, New York. Um, so yeah, just through, I guess, through the years of experience in the outpatient sports setting, uh, worked with a lot of uh, runners and endurance athletes, uh, a lot of ACL reconstructions, uh, post-operative sports cases. I uh, did a sports residency through University of Rochester Medical Center as well. Um, yeah, so I've kind of gravitated now towards that, that um, I guess, mid-spectrum of end of rehab and start of performance training. <laughs> yeah. That tends to be where you are when, if, if you do both rehab and uh, sports performance, you mm-hmm. tend to get that, like, 
oh, this is kind of like the borderline end of rehab, and now this is kind of into performance and, and beyond, uh, which is really fun. And I have so many questions about that because <laughs> there's a strength and conditioning PT combo here in Portland that you know I love and their colleagues, but they they work with a lot of professional athletes like NFL to MLB to you know you name it. And the idea that PTs and sports performance can coexist, but where does that line go from PT to sports performance? And then do you charge differently? Do you charge more for your services to keep them on in sports performance? Tell us a little bit about that right off the bat. So I run a, um, a virtual private practice um, where I, it's, it's rehab and it's sports performance coaching. And, and it tends to start with people contacting me for like virtual assessments because they have some sort of pain or uh, running related injury from working with a runner. And um, I, I charge the service for the same thing. Personally, that's what I do. It's because, I mean, I'm, I'm mostly uh, charging for the consultation time. So somebody is paying me for the time that they're, um, the time that I'm investing in them and, and they're paying for my expertise and things. And yeah. so to me, delineating like, well, this is what my expertise on getting you from uh, pain, painful to pain-free costs. But then after that, it costs different to go from uh, pain-free, but not performing well to pain-free performing well. It, it just doesn't, I don't know, that part doesn't really make too much sense to me, but I'm sure there are a number of people that disagree just based on the the market costs of those things separately. Yeah, but I think it gets less messy when you're not involving payers and like an insurance. You're not muddying the waters with colleagues that you work with and you're not having to kind of co-compete and say, well, no, hold on. They're not yeah. ready to come with you yet. There's not that awkward transfer of care. Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a good point. That And kind of through my, my private um, rehab and, and performance consulting work, it's very easy since I am the one person that does the things I can see yeah. in the larger setting. So where I'm at at University of Rochester Medical Center, I work in the performance division um, and it is a little bit less clear, like who is who is a client who um, is ready to go for this cash pay performance training versus, well, they're still checking in with PT every month to right. change this part of their program um, that. Yeah, that, that part, you probably just need to be on the same page with the other provider of the team. Right. And that, and is there anybody within that kind of sports team that you have any like friction with? I just came from Fox and we had athletic trainers and we, you know, that I was doing strength and conditioning for this the women's basketball team, but I'm also the PT. And when they're lifting, they're having these like weird nagging things. So it's hard to kind of turn off your PT hat and turn on your performance hat. And that's where some of the other medical per personnel would get kind of uh, in just a really tough spot because they're like, that's not what you do. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm supposed to do that, but I'm also a PT. So it's hard to not have that hat on. I, I, yeah, I've seen that on, on an individual basis, just go in all different directions. Um, I've worked with athletic trainers who are very happy that I'm helping them out because they are overloaded as a profession. Yes. <laughs> so the, the, uh, I've worked with some who are just like, oh, you want to rehab them? Go for it. Uh, mm -hmm. and I've, uh, you know, I've encountered others in other cases where they're more protective of the, the case of the athlete. Um, maybe some of that sometimes is just because they're like, they were the first contact point, and So they, they want to be the, um, uh, kind of like, like a triage type individual. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's probably, it's probably a personality thing. It's probably a general culture of the program thing. Uh, I yeah. can see it go a lot of different ways. I mean, the, the my, my pitch is always like, look, if you're busy, I got this thing for you. 
And and most yes. healthcare professionals are too busy, whether they're whether we're talking about athletic trainer passing to physical therapist, athletic trainer passing to strength coach, strength coach passing to PT, PT passing to strength coach. Um, I think there are a lot of, you know, PT is a profession where we've got our, our tendrils and a lot of different things. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that makes us overloaded. And in a busy outpatient clinical setting, I've certainly been there where it's like, man, I am, uh, I'm not doing a good job with programming right now during the yeah. day. And so I need to take all of this work home and do it after hours if I want to do a good job with it. Right. When that might be a case where referring to a strength coach would be very appropriate. Yeah, I like that thought. So before I uh, let John ask some questions, uh, you mentioned being a part of Rochester FC. So I have to ask, are you a Ted Lasso fan? This is actually, is this, today is when the- Today uh, is season three. Season comes out? Yep, yes. absolutely. Not to, not to date the episode for the people no, who listen to this in 10 years. <laughs> I know, for sure. <laughs> we actually, I have a funny story about that. Last season, uh, our, our one of our assistant coaches uh, who's from Portugal, he he purchased a really cheap pair of um, football cleats on Amazon. And when they came in, he found out that they were American football cleats. And oh, so no. for, for two weeks, he was known as Guy Lasso. <laughs> I love that. That is so funny. <laughs> anyway, they, uh, that just plays into my love of like British shows and British humor, like Roy Kent and his well-timed F-bombs. Like, I just I just love that show. It's so funny. Speaking of F-bombs, so when I was watching Jason present at CSM, he didn't drop any F-bombs, but there was one, uh, this one slide in your presentation, I hope we can dissect a little bit. It was an Ozarks reference. And the character Ruth is like, my husband and I, the amount of times we use that quote, it's her classic, I don't know anything about anything, but the words anything are replaced with two expletives. Oh yeah, uh, but you know it. It was just like a hilarious slide. You can tell the people that watch Ozarks in the audience were laughing. And so when I wrote Jason an email to get like a copy of his presentation, I said, "I also love the Ozarks reference. That was uh, well placed." And yeah, that that was funny. The uh, the the year prior, we had um, we had really been referencing that a lot, and I was like, "I wonder if I could get away with putting that on a slide at CSM." And the answer was yes. Uh, assuming obviously that I, I censored it in a in a creative way, but the um, that was one that I actually didn't expect there to just be like a as soon as I change slides, half of the room starts laughing. It was oh, like, a, oh yeah, I forgot that this is <laughs> this is a thing. <laughs> like I, you know, you you look at the slides so many times as you're making them and all that, and then you yeah. forget. Um, you know, when something up there is like, oh yeah, that was meant to make people laugh. I forgot about that. Right. Well, it felt like your whole presentation was meant to make people laugh. You had an obviously an amazing like cast of people that you were up there with, uh, just like giving different tidbits about this topic. Then you get up there and you just command the room. I can tell like you have this really engaging spirit. You're hilarious. Like you add humor to your slides, but you also had a lot of clinical relevance, which I hope that people come away with from this podcast today, um, like measuring what matters and understanding, you know, when to progress an athlete from just doing really basic sub game-like activities. Uh, when do you progress them to running, to plyometrics and things like that? Uh, not that you need to unload your whole presentation, but we'd love to touch on some of those high points um, and maybe you take it from a PT to strength training perspective. When do you progress people and what are the major hallmarks that you look for? 
Yeah, so that's a great question. That that was, you know, the overall theme of the session was when can I start running? Yeah. Uh, and clearly we we realized pretty quickly when we got that session together, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to use specific populations because when can I start running for somebody status post ACL reconstruction is different than status post navicular stress fracture, is right. different than postpartum, et cetera. Um, yeah, so I mean this is where I'm a big, a big fan of using, um, using force testing or using uh, torque testing, both from a, a limb symmetry standpoint and from uh, trying to figure out some general goal for body weight norms. Uh, what I what I spoke on with ACL reconstruction is we have a lot of other prerequisites that have to happen first. So just from a basic tissue healing standpoint, I think that's the um, that's the theme with all running injuries, whether it's a stress fracture, whether it's uh, achieving a quiet knee after after an ACL reconstruction or a quiet joint after any lower extremity surgery. There there has to be this um, kind of just fundamental, well, how long does it take for tissue to heal? And mm -hmm. until that happens, I, I don't know that we can really cheat that part of it, um, unless somebody's pushing some product that cheats tissue healing, in which case I'm, I'm not there yet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> The evidence isn't very yeah, clear. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, once you get past that point, a, a lot of this, what we've done traditionally is like, well, once you can do these tasks, then we have a better idea that you can do this thing. And that's a derivative of just using a benchmark of when you can tolerate this amount of force, um, you know, insert any task here then we maybe have a better idea that you can tolerate this thing up here, which is, which has a certain prerequisite of loading. Um, the, uh, then that's where I, then I get to like my, my thought now on a return to sport test or a return to activity tests is that these things are more, uh, screening out rather than screening in it's, if you can't hit this mark, then I know you're not ready. If you can hit this mark, I'm still not positive that you are ready, but, now we can move on to the next thing here, um, which is kind of like a fundamental issue of a lot of return to sport testing of the thought of like, okay, if you pass these, you're in, even right. though in reality, it's more about the tests that you fail than it is the tests that you pass. Um, and that's where I get to, to force testing. So um, like for ACL reconstructions, the, you know, the general goal seems to be in like the 60 to 70% LSI range, but that hinges on if the, the contralateral limb is as strong as it needs to be. And, and we know that after surgery, that contralateral quadriceps gets weaker. So if we're just right. using limb symmetry index and we didn't have pre-injury information about the contralateral side, then we're, we're using limb symmetry index, but we're probably tricking ourselves into thinking we're better than we actually are. Um, so we have some general, like for the quadriceps, we have a general goal of uh, three newton meters per kilogram or a hundred percent peak torque to body weight that seems to be a recurring number throughout a lot of different populations right. soccer players runners uh american football rugby and even like i think a couple studies in just the general geriatric population uh which yeah. helps to reinforce that it's not just like a sport specific oh these athletes uh, have really strong quads versus these ones Although I do suspect like rugby players, it's probably higher than that. If you've, if you ever seen a rugby player's leg, it's like, yeah, that thing's top of the line. Tree trunk. Yep. For sure. So, so Jason, that brings up a, uh, one of the questions that, um, that we had submitted. And, and one of those is, is do quad ham ratios still matter? 
Yeah, it's a good question. I I don't know. I don't know that they really do so much as does it, it, like let's say they're hitting um, what we think their quad torque to body weight norm needs to be and what the range of their hamstring uh, peak torque to body weight norm is, which that part is different. There, there, there doesn't seem to be one number for the hamstrings. It's like, oh yeah, okay, it's two. It's, well, some people it's like 45% body weight seems to be normal and they can get after hamstring training and still not really see that much improvement. And others, it can be up to 100%. Um, we've seen Eric Kmeda, who is a guest of the show, um, he showed me some numbers from some cross-country runners that he had tested. And it was like they they had like a one-to-one quad hamstring ratio. <laughs> and so yeah. um, that's a huge range. I mean, there's a huge swing for the hamstrings. And so that, that might be one of the reasons why there's so much confusion around ham quad ratio too is that if the hamstring is kind of supposed to be different on everybody but the quad is gonna be stable then you're probably gonna see a different ham quad ratio yeah that's really well articulated i i like the kind of the range and like the the knowledge you have of like different populations and things that you see clinically my next question is like if we're talking to pts out there how are you measuring this yeah so um I'm, I'm lucky to have worked in a place with a isokinetic device since 2020. Uh, prior to that, I was using uh, just inline dynamometry. So mm-hmm. I, I started off with the, the Amazon crane scale, <laughs> played around with a few different variations because it was all just coming out of my, my personal interest budget. Um, now I use the, uh, the Tindac uh, progressor. It's like really uh, yeah. light inline dynamometer it's it's very affordable the i think the 300 kilogram one is a little over 200 dollars um so i mean i still use that more often than i do a isokinetic machine one because i'm in a different location now so i'd have to go to a different building to do it and two just because it's actually a lot faster and uh, when you set somebody up on a biodex which is what we have here it's the whole process tends to take around 15 minutes after you swing one leg over to the other side and you get all the repetition testing in um for something like an inline dynamometer you know you set up something like that under a leg extension machine they're already fixated down they've got a belt down and once you find the angle that you're interested in testing which we can talk more about angles of testing too uh sure and the whole process is is pretty quick yeah no i like that and i we hear the tin deck a lot a lot of folks we know use it it's really affordable it goes straight to your phone um it's it's a really nice tool um so with that yeah if you want to test different angles does it matter on the sport do you try to get optimal um length tension like what's your strategy with that so this is this is uh something i've talked to uh chris you know the one of the other hosts of uh, pt and quest about a lot um we like the idea of three different positions and maybe you know you don't have to do all of these things but one would just be the this is the optimal force length position of the muscle so for the yeah. quadriceps i'm usually setting people up between 60 and 70 degrees of knee flexion uh assuming you can still reliably get a, a perpendicular line of pull with the dynamometer and, and this is just because this is best case scenario and so if you're mm-hmm. testing somebody best case scenario and they still can't hit the threshold that you're looking for I don't know that you even need to keep going. I think at that point, it's like, well, 
yeah, if in the best case scenario, you can't do this. I have no reason to believe that in a worse, like a less than best case scenario, this is going to be any better at all. Right. Uh, now, if they do match that, it's again, it's like it's kind of like a screening test. It doesn't mean that you're ready. It means now maybe I need to hunt for something that's a little bit less best case scenario and see if there are still any issues there. Um, so that would be first one is I, I always look like the length tension. Second one would be, this is maybe not length tension, but this is the position that I'm having symptoms in. Mm -hmm. And so then this is a way now where I'll be able to just investigate what is, what's your, I don't know, symptom irritability or um, pain thresholds, pain tolerance, that type of stuff. Yeah. For pain threshold, I usually just say, um, slowly push into this until about the point where you feel your symptoms come on. And mm -hmm. for pain tolerance, assuming it would, I know that it's safe to do this, I would just say, yeah, just crank into that thing as hard as you can. Um, yeah. And then you kind of have those two numbers there. Uh, yeah, and then the third, the third one overall, I would say is some sort of sport specific joint testing. Um, so this would be, uh, times I've used this before would be for distance runners um, coming off of knee surgeries. You know, you're not going to be in 60 degrees or 70 degrees of knee flexion during running, and that's okay. I'm right. still going to test you there first to see in best case scenario, what can the quad do? But then mm -hmm. I'm probably going to investigate if they're still having issues with running something between 40 degrees or some somewhere in that ballpark of this is around where you should be when you're at mid stance phase of running. Yeah, I love that. Did you want to keep going with the questions? Uh, well, I wanted to follow up with with that. You know, I mean, one of our big tenets of our podcast is to make sure that we're if we're asking people to listen and give us their time, we want to make sure that that listeners are, are walking away with things that they can next day implement in the clinic and you're already giving us great things but i wanted to take it one step further in the sense of okay so you find let's let's take an example of a runner right let's say they're in that sort of 10 to 12 weeks post-op right let's keep it in the acl world um you know and you start to get that people start getting the itch right and they start they start going wait you know i'm really feeling good and i want to get running like when can i get running you know and and you're like you know yeah, go, go start running in a straight line for a little bit, you know, let's hit something. But, you know, for for you, let's say now you've gone to that sort of 25 to 40 degree range and you find that they're not generating what you'd like, you know, now apply that to your, your, your you know, what do you do next in the clinic? Yeah, I should say I don't I don't usually use the um, sports specific or the symptom specific position to inform like a return to sport test your screen that's probably more one of those investigations if i feel like we've already checked this large box but they're still having difficulties with something else um but the main thing i i typically do in that time frame when people are starting to feel like they're ready but realistically they aren't ready is uh talk to them about the risk reward of it like this is a really long ride right we're you know, we're talking ACL reconstruction, but even other surgeries maybe where the expected rehab is six months or five months. I mean, you got to inform them of um, this is what might happen if we start running and it doesn't go well. And then ultimately down the road, you're going to you're going to kick yourself because you're going to say, well, yeah, I guess I should have just waited a little bit longer. That ultimately might not have been worth it. Um, but if you go through that whole round of informed consent and say, um, 
you know, this is where I think we're at right now. This is what we need to do. Ultimately, I, I do use the, um, the mental health benefits as, as a, a, typically a variable that I weigh in this. Like if somebody really, really wants to get back to that thing that they love doing. And I don't think that there is a large risk from a tissue damage, reversing the effects of the surgery standpoint. I mean, that, that plays into my decision-making as well. Uh, largely though, what I like to do is make them feel like they're an athlete already through other stuff. So, um, you know, your battle ropes, your aerodyne bike, your things that you can, you can just make life suck with, uh, without it feeling like your knee is the limiting factor. Uh, that tends to work really well on the individuals that just have that itch to like get back to the thing, especially considering getting back to running after an ACL reconstruction it's a really long time before it's actually running. Uh, it's a, it's just a loading task for the first month and change. So, yeah, or running to what they consider to be running for themselves. Exactly. Even longer when you get to that, like getting back into workouts, getting back into high speed running. Yeah, that takes forever. Yeah, I love that. So another question that one of our motion science team wanted you to either bust a myth or give us something. Um, in the way of like hamstring capacity, like can a Nordic curl one rep max help a clinician approximate hamstring capacity? Okay, so this would be like if you had a Nord board, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's a that's a good question because hamstring capacity depends on the position that you're testing it at. And if we think that, okay, the hamstring is most injured at this uh, high range of hip flexion and high range of knee extension eccentric load um yeah. then it's it's that that nordic or nord board test is probably not going to be the thing that detects that um now then when you get into like what's the optimal length tension position for the hamstrings then you're probably working a couple different hip flexion and knee flexion angles both not end range for either side um, that's, that's really a pain to test <laughs> from, yeah. from an, uh, isometric dynamometer standpoint. Those ones are usually, if I'm, if I'm really trying to investigate something going on with the hamstring, I do use the isokinetic machine more often than not. Although when I am testing isometric, I'll start off with a, um, like a prone on a bench, with the knee flex to about 30 to 45 degrees. And then the dynamometer being anchored to the ground leading up to, uh, that's a really easy first test because most people don't have pain with that. Let's say it's a hamstring strain um, because you're in full hip extension. Most people don't have pain. They just might still have some weakness there. So I like using that as my um, kind of like first screen baseline test of if you're equal here, then we're going to move on. If you're not even equal here, then I have no reason to believe that you'll be equal once you're in a high degree of hip flexion. Yeah. Uh, and then from an isometric standpoint, if, if all I have to work with is that I'm usually going to a seated, so um, seated on a bench, hips are flexed to 90 degrees, and then the knee is somewhere flexed to 30 to 45 degrees, pulling downward at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the one isometrically where you typically see some more limitations, especially towards the end range of the muscle, uh, given that that's where we assume most of those hamstring injuries are happening. And that's really interesting because I feel like, and let me know if this confirms what your experience is, is when patients go through that testing with you, it's more apparent to them, wow, I still have a little bit of work to do. And they're less likely to try to push the boundaries 
I'm sure you've had patients that are like, I should be able to run right now or their parents or their coaches that want them to return to sport. And you're like, actually, I have this that's telling me you're not ready. Yeah, I've, I've, it's gone both ways. It's actually blown up in my face before too, where okay. they, uh, they feel like they're ready. I feel like they're not, they do well on the test, but it's, but it's maybe one of the tests that isn't as specific to their problems. So let's say it's the prone hamstring curl test. They do really well on that. And then it's like, listen, dude, I got just scored a 95 on that. Um, and then you have to continue investigating to either show that they are, or maybe aren't ready at that point. Yeah. Um, yeah, the number, the number thing can be really, really good from a buy-in standpoint until the times where it's either so low or so high that it either scares people or you're like, Oh, that was supposed to be my piece of evidence to show what we're going to do here. Right. But yeah. well, either way, we're going to strengthen the hamstrings. So, yeah, right. But then, you know, it kind of opens up the question of what are your criteria? So you have some really nice slides of like things that you, or hallmarks that you, define as kind of a next step to return to run. Can you break those down or just list them for our clinicians listening? Yeah, so after the, that initial criteria of um, somewhere in that 60, 70% LSI and on the uh, ACL side, somewhere around two Newton meters per kilogram or, or 66% peak torque to body weight, uh, those, are, those are probably the main ones where I'm thinking, all right, at this point, the quadriceps has the ability to start to handle some of these running demands. And then what I'll typically do is a week or so of taking somebody through some low level uh, extensive plyos, um, kind of like your pogo jumps at a couple, a couple things like a vertical jump, a broad jump. And that's to me on the assessment of um, how does the knee respond to this type of impact? Because uh, you can have all of this stuff lined up strength-wise, but if the biology of the knee just isn't ready yet, then it's going to swell up and you'll have, you know, the, the fusion for longer than 24 hours, that kind of thing that we're trying to avoid here. Um, so I use that as a clearance test. Uh, I've gone back and forth on, like, total, you know, hopping in place, number of repetitions, things like that. Uh, I've kind of gotten to the point where I feel like the ones who aren't going to pass it, I actually have a some somewhat of an idea going into it the ones that are going to pass it i'm like yeah i'm pretty sure they're going to be okay with this um but i'll go through a few rounds like three sets of five to ten double leg pogo jumps a couple low intensity single leg pogo jumps and then a few rounds of uh, vertical jump and broad jump and using that kind of typical pain rules fusion rules we got to see how it's feeling into the next day so contact me if if in greater greater than 24 hours, the swelling still hasn't gone away. I, I will usually show people how to do a sweep test on their knee just to like assess it a little bit from their end. Um, okay. That's that's kind of like my prep for return to run. And then the actual return to run intervals, I, I also go back and forth on, and this is largely because of the variation in the athlete. So somebody who's a 60 mile a week distance runner who for some reason tore their ACL skiing and now has to do ACL rehab versus uh, high school running back. Those return to run pro progressions are probably going to look a little bit different because I know that, okay, well, four months ago, your running looked a lot different anyway. Uh, I might not be able to just prescribe the same 30 seconds off, two and a half minute, 30 seconds on, two and a half minutes off thing for everybody. Uh, I think that's a, that's a great point. It's uh, 
you know, I think there are very different ranges and, um, you know, return to return to run programs look very different depending on the population that you're, that you are dealing with. And, uh, that's, it, it's good to hear you reinforce that, um, that piece of it. Um, I have another question from Matt. Oh yeah, so, sure. Go for it. If you want. So this one, I guess, maybe goes beyond running because you're talking about you know broad jumps and different plyometrics. When does knee valgus in landing help predict risk, or does it? Uh, knee is is this the only thing that I'm investigating? So I'm just I'm just doing a landing errors scoring system on everybody. I have no idea what their strength levels are. Yeah. Uh, I would say I just wouldn't I wouldn't make uh, the inference based on that solely. Yeah. Now, if, if I saw that plus somebody's quadriceps numbers were very, very low or very asymmetrical, then I would say, let's investigate those quadriceps. Uh, I think it's a it's a product of um, movement is, is just movements, the output, right? So everybody's moving through space with the the least amount of effort necessary everyone's just trying to save energy so this like using movement to predict things i don't know if it's, it's that versus um movement is the explanation of what's going on in their body that's always yeah. been my stance any other planes that you test torque or forces in um besides the sagittal plane and uh why or why not uh, would this be uh, specific to ACL or just in athletes in general? Um, ACL and maybe, maybe even in some like non-specific knee pain type scenarios. You know. Yeah, I mean, I do. Um, I like to do a hip abductor peak torque test. Uh, the way that I've been doing that lately is uh, the supine. Uh, so supine on a plinth, one leg and hook lying, the other leg uh, fully extended, and then. Um, I've actually been using the, the inline pull for that more often, just putting a belt around my waist, hooking that up and standing across them and then making sure that they're stabilized, either put a belt around them under the plinth or have them stabilized with their arms and pull into abduction. Um, actually we just did a bunch of those, uh, for the, the, um, University of Rochester cross country team that we were testing out the other day. So abduction, I like adduction as well, especially if it's a cutting sport athlete, um, Many of these athletes who have ACL reconstructions are also athletes that tend to have hip pain or FAI. Um, one of these, just the, just the general products of playing a cutting sport. Uh, and I find that the adductor is the, that's the thing that tells me the most information about somebody's hip joint. So while they're there, I'll usually get adductor and abductor testing. Um, and you're probably going to ask about the ratio of adductor to abductors now, aren't you? Or, uh, or maybe some trends that you or, see. <laughs> or more specifically, hip abduction ratio to body weight, perhaps, peak torque to body weight. So that's interesting. And that was one of the things that I was just in-house investigating with the distance runners that we work with. Um, really big range in abductor to abductor torque to body weight ratios that's reported in the literature and somewhat muddied by the fact that some studies actually just use strength to body weight which tells us nothing because everybody's legs are a different length so um what i found recently is our, our women's uh, cross-country athletes these are d3 athletes uh, they tended to be somewhere in like the 46 to 50 percent peak torque to body weight range and uh, the men's ended up in the 52 to 60 percent if i remember 
um kind of general general range now i look for is like okay if you can hit half half of your body weight peak torque to body weight then we're in the ballpark uh but that is one that tends to to have some variation from a sports standpoint which is why i was interested to see what the runners were because you'd think due to the demands of middle and long distance running the abductors would i mean they're they're taking on quite a bit and the adductors not so much just mostly from a stability standpoint uh since they're really not um you know frontal plane athletes yeah um so that's curious your those ratios you found in those those d3 runners uh you know, about 10 years ago, working with the Oregon Project team here in, in Portland, we were we were toying around, and these were early days of like handheld dynamometry and things like that, right? And, you know, who knows if we were measuring, you know, perfectly in a better way uh, than, than today. I feel like the, the, the methods have been refined quite a bit, but, you know, uh, but just anecdotally, we were finding that um, that our guys and gals were in more in that like 60 to 75% body range right but again without you know there there could have been us in in sure uh, yeah. you know and these were clouding these were, those uh do you say that was with the Oregon project yeah yeah so professional runners too i mean you could say maybe that's one of those like from high school to d3 to d1 to professional you might see that scale up mm-hmm. um or it might be one of those fun things where it doesn't i don't know i yeah i don't know i mean we we just did uh, you know, this is when I was working with Dave McHenry and, and, and all of that crew with the Oregon Project, and we just did a shit ton of lifting. I mean, you know, like Mo and Galen could could squat, you know, two, three times their body weight. Like, it, like they were just, they were animals, you know, and um, that's, you know, maybe that is why they were able uh, to do, to produce that amount of torque. Um, but also, I mean, you know, they were they were so injury free, uh, you know, was it from the strength and conditioning? Was it from the care as, you know, as a whole, the whole suite of services probably. Right. But, um, it was, uh, that was what, that was what we saw, but it's curious to see like, you know, your, your experience in those numbers and then who knows, you know, it, it's tough to, tough to get all those data points, but it's, yeah. It, yeah it's and that's, that's, that's the interesting thing too, is you think that for the third most loaded muscle of during distance running, the abductors, We'd, we'd probably see a little bit more of this information out there, but it's it's still a little bit muddy when you look at it in the literature. A lot, mostly, still a lot of um, uh, soccer and American football studies. Yeah, I like that. So, if we're not shifting gears totally, but Tyler, one of our other motion science guys, you know. Uh, wanted to ask about the stretch shortening cycle, Achilles, hams, quads, glute, and what tests you use to determine performance injury and return to sport training. And it's a very loaded question. So take that wherever you want. Sure. Um, well, so if, if we're talking stretch shortening cycle, I want to see a very quick ply, actual plyometric. So I would, I would usually define that as they got to be on the ground for less than 250 milliseconds. So that's the, that's the test that I'm looking for. I'm usually doing a drop jump assessment. Um, we don't have force plates here currently. We have a jump mat, which doesn't really give you the, uh, the RSI that I'm looking for. So I use the MyJump app, which is your like $15 app that you get on your phone. Um, 
takes a really high definition video as long as the camera is in the right plane so that you're not tricking yourself into seeing something that's not actually in that position then right. uh, you would measure the time that they're on the ground just by the actual contact of their shoe on the ground and back out and then the time that they're in the air so the time that their foot leaves the ground to the time that it comes back down to the ground uh, and Reactive strength index is technically the um, it's a it's an arbitrary unit of jump height divided by ground contact time. Uh, I guess I well let me back up for a second. With the drop jump test, usually I'm going off of a 12 inch box. Uh, sometimes I will change that up or down as kind of a like well, what happens if we're a little closer or we're a little higher above the ground. Uh, but the instruction is to um, step off the box and then spend as little time on the ground as possible while trying to jump as high as possible. So uh, somebody with a really good reactive strength index, it would be a higher number because your jump height would be very high and then your ground contact time would be very minimal that you're dividing it by. Uh, this app technically measures reactive strength ratio, which is flight time divided by ground contact time. Um, they're both unitless measures, but um, some people put out normative data of RSI, and uh, sometimes they're actually writing RSR, and so there can be some confusion there. So I always um, just ask people or have people write like, is this um, is this jump height or is this jump time, just to be able to decipher those. Uh, really good reactive strength ratio would be like two or three so you're spending two to three times as much time in the air as you are on the ground this uh this app just pretty easily measures it and um once i get somebody's double leg version i'll usually do unilateral and at that point if i'm investigating an injury that's where i'm gonna see this and this is usually the test that it takes people long like the longest time to pass uh i really like this for after acl reconstructions too because this is like the um yeah, you've gotten to the point where you're strong, but you can't express it in a very short period of time, or there's still some inhibition on that impact landing that is forcing the body to land like you have a flat tire. Uh, but especially with Achilles pathology, this is one of my go-to like return to sport in giant quotations tests for yeah. um, Achilles post-ops. That's awesome. Uh, do you have any questions off of that? Just for clarity, the when you shift from bilateral to unilateral uh same height different yeah i'm usually that... going same like same 12 inch height okay and then if somebody is symmetrical but i still have a suspicion that they're not that's when i'll test at different heights usually it's going to be a little bit higher than that maybe go up to 16 or 18 inches or sometimes down to like eight inches and i've, I've played around with the idea too of um like making a, a profile of going by height like 8, 12, 16 inches, and then mapping their RSI out. Um, that's probably something I would do if I had like a ton of time with somebody, but it it does kind of take a long time to do that. Yeah. So it's and there's like only so many, to, yeah. You have to spend a session on jump, a session on like strength and, and getting all those measurements that you need. Do you have any other questions before I dive into more of the philosophical questions about where he sees PT? Oh, I would say one other follow-up to that would be, do you vary the height of that drop based on the height of the patient or the athlete? Um, I usually don't. Uh, 
Maybe I should. Maybe I should start doing some quantification of this is X percent of your body height because that, that does make sense. I mean, I do this on a fair amount of basketball players and it probably uh, is a different result than working with the five foot tall gymnast. Or maybe it's not. I don't know. I haven't tried that. That's the curious thing, right? I mean, the argument could be made that it's just all we're doing is uh, increasing the load on something that it can't can't handle, right? If even if they are seven feet tall, but yeah, I mean, that's if they are that tall, then you know that's about the height of their high top, right? Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) so true. I do want to be mindful of your time, so would love to jump into like where do you see PT in the next five ten years? That's a good question. Um, uh, maybe it's just because of the field that I'm in and the biases that I have, but I, I, I at least would like to see it move towards more of the combined uh, rehab performance models. Um, I, I know, I mean, I can speak to in upstate New York and Rochester area, the limitations from insurance companies are, are pretty, um, pretty major. Uh, that dictates quite a lot uh, and and a lot of the reason why in this area of the country, physical therapists are paid pretty poorly relative to the rest of the country. So um, leaving that model could be a solution for that. Uh, I know I know a lot of people are excited about that idea. Uh, the obvious limitation to that is if you stop accepting insurance, then it does funnel the type of clients that you're getting. You're not servicing the greater community who can't pay cash pay services for PT and performance training. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely one area. I think the uh, things like force testing and being more objective with uh, numbers in that direction, it's, it's about time that that change continues to happen because we're, it's not like this profession is a stranger to numbers. We, we've carried goniometers around since I think probably a very long time. So mm-hmm. uh, measuring things is not it's not foreign. I, I think maybe prioritizing what we are measuring and realizing that sometimes some of these other things that we measure might just be proxy measurements for the the real thing. Um, I think I think that's a that's a direction that that things are are definitely going in. Uh, and I think just the continued integration of new evidence into practice i'm you know i know everybody tosses around the 17 years like it takes 17 years to translate uh, research into clinical practice but i i would be interested to see that study redone now maybe because mm-hmm. I, I think when that study those findings originally came out it wasn't this it wasn't in the like everything you can download all at once era yeah it, that may still be, may, may still have been in the um, you know, it's a little harder to get access to these publications era. Right. Um, although you can make the case that just because we have the ability to access them doesn't mean that we are. Yeah. And I think the amount of information at our fingertips is so much bigger. Just listening to your guys' podcast, seeing some of the more prolific, like I know we give a lot of hate to like Instagram influencers. There are plenty of bad ones, but there are also some like yourself that are putting out published articles or are um, trying to synthesize things and have these more nuanced discussions that once PTs catch wind of that, they really gravitate towards these thought leaders. And I think it's it makes it easier, which is again, kind of our purpose for this too, is like, can we get some of the bigger thought leaders and get them to share so we can really be doctors of PT and not just technicians or downstream 
revenue sources that are still just ultrasounding and lasering and e-stimming all these problems, those have a space, but it's like as more objective data comes out, it's almost like we have to flip the way we practice to these more evidence-based and objective outcomes because it's really what matters. So. Yeah, and behavior change is hard, especially yes. it's it's harder and harder the longer you do something too. So there's mm-hmm. one thought is that everybody who's in the profession right now, there there may only be a small bandwidth for them to change what they're doing, but uh, yeah. affecting new grads coming out and students and people who are prospective PT students before they even get into the profession probably will have a more uh, influential uh, impact on on the direction that the profession goes. So, all the people in in the PT programs, I salute thee. Yes, and <laughs> they were everywhere at CSM. It's cool to see all the the students turning up because, uh, yeah, it's really how we're going to make changes. You know, as twenty thousand people leave the profession, hopefully they're the ones that aren't trying to change it. Now we get an excited new bunch of twenty thousand people that want to, you know, make these changes. To that to that point, what do you do? You have any good recommendations for our listeners? That you know, what are your go-to things that you like to uh, look at? You know, might be Instagram, it may be you know JOSPT, but you know, what are what are some of the things that you like? It may be something completely out of the box. Yeah, there's this journal called podcast called PT Inquest. It's pretty good. No, it's um, amazing. <laughs> Um, Go ahead, plug it, yeah, man. I, PT Inquest on both on both the uh, uh, Apple and Google Play Store. Yeah. Yep, it's on uh, it's on Spotify. all streaming services. Online Journal Club, jokes, articles. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of uh, personally just following a lot of researchers on Twitter. Uh, like, if you if you read a paper and you find that it's interesting, look up that researcher and then see what else they have going, uh, as well as trying to meet them at conferences and in, in person talking to them. That's a, it's always been a really important thing for me. Um, yeah, but I think, I mean, I, I started a, an Instagram account to just post research and share, like share findings and things like that. And, uh, that's certainly not a, it's not a popular <laughs> form of, of the use of Instagram, but decided to just keep doing it. Um, what is it? My uh, my own personal Instagram page is uh, jasontory.dpt, I think. Um, we'll link. But it. yeah, I'm a I'm a fan of the like using social media to find new research, but that's also always just been one of my interests, which culminated with me joining a journal club podcast. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, those are, I think, and then you know, if somebody is is interested in the like, how do I get new articles? Uh, there are various ways, like signing up for alerts on PubMed of certain journals or certain authors on Google Scholar. You can set alerts for when they have new publications. Um, so I have large number of emails that I always have to sift through because I've done too much of that stuff. <laughs> I love that. And last question, like. What's something that you're learning lately? It can be totally outside of the realm of PT. Uh, what's on your bedside table? Uh, you know, what? Give us insight into your brain right now. Oh, this is great. I um, this is outside the realm of PT because I I realized I needed to. Uh, I used to just just like it was. I was always plugged in, and uh, realized I needed to revisit some some fiction. So um, I got really into uh, post apocalyptic. Uh, 
like uh, fiction, but but really in the realm of like nuclear post-apocalyptic fiction. Okay. So there's um there's a great great series of novels called the Silo series, and uh, I just I've just been like cranking through them. It's a couple five hundred page books. Can't put them down. Uh, That's awesome. But yeah, whenever you you uh, you just get into this situation where suddenly humanity lives in a silo under the earth and you can't go outside, you gotta investigate that. That's wild. There is a, I think there's an Apple TV uh, adaptation of it coming out soon too. So I'm, I'm excited okay. on that one. I'll okay, be like I'll that annoying person who uh, read Game of Thrones before watching the show and then told <laughs> totally. Yeah. <laughs> like this isn't the way the book went. This isn't good enough. No, I love that. I, uh, I was a fan of like The Walking Dead and like post-apocalyptic like zombie shows. Like there's just something that exposes humanity in a, in a way that obviously we don't see now because we're all in our houses watching Netflix and community's not integrated the same way. People aren't like farming stuff and trying to figure out ways to survive. It's like, I just, I feel like we have it so easy, you know? It, it, that <laughs> stuff definitely hits harder once you live through COVID too. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh man. Jason, this has been such a joy. I can't wait to uh, listen to more of your podcasts, but see you at future conferences. Definitely going to hit up Boston next year. Um, being on the West Coast, we're a little bit soft to the snow, but hopefully February is not too brutal on us next year. But It'll probably be sunnier than here. I know it probably will be. But anyway, thank Thanks you so much. Yeah. This it. Yeah, this was awesome. Appreciate your time and thank you for sharing everything. We'll link your podcast, your Instagram, your Twitter. We'll link everything uh, in this as well as uh, drop you some of this audio and video. Great. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks Have a lot, awesome Jason. day and uh, we'll talk to you soon. You've been listening to the Force Matters podcast. We appreciate you tuning in and really want to hear from you. If you have questions you'd like to hear answered on the podcast, you can find us at motusi.com on our blog page or DM us on Instagram at motusicorp. See you next time. And until then, keep moving.